I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. It's no secret Yeti has some of the best and most durable gear out there. But when it came to hydration, they previously didn't have a great backcountry solution. Well, that all changed with their new Yonder water bottle. My Yonder covered the backcountry all across the West last season while chasing mule deer, elk, caribou, and more. It's about 50% lighter than their insulated Rambler, but still has that Yeti toughness. The best part is they've now got them in four different sizes, so you can pack the bottle perfectly fit for your hunt. To top it off, there's also great options for customization. You can check them out now at yeti.com. Well, everyone, welcome back to the Live Wild podcast. Today is the beginning of the 12 days of Christmas, and I always like to be able to give back to you guys. So I'm launching my 12 days of Christmas giveaway just as a thank you for all the support. So the way it works is each day there's a different prize up for grabs, and there's going to be one way to enter, and then you have essentially multiple tasks that have different amount of entries in it. And you go in and we've got some incredible prizes. So thousands of dollars worth of gear. We've got Stone Glacier, tent, pack, sleeping bag, Vortex, Razor Binas. We've got a pair of Schnee's boots, prize pack from Yeti. We've got some First Light gear. We've got meat processing stuff from Meet Your Maker. We have Montana Knife, Matthews Bow, MagView, some Live Wild Apparel, Wilderness Athlete Kit, prize pack from go hunt and mountain tough as well thousands of dollars worth of gear each day a new winner and so i'm really excited to be able to do that i love doing that this time of year so it's back 12 days of christmas giveaway i I made it a little bit easier this year because last year i did it and there's like all these different things you had to do each day now you can just go there and do them all right now before before each day so you just go in one time and then it's a system that we got that makes it a lot easier to be able to track and and winners you can just find that on my website remywarren.com it's super easy to do so if you guys are interested in entering into that best of luck to you I'm, I'm really excited to be able to to contact some winners and tell you guys what you won just as a note though one thing that we had happen in last year is a lot of people got random messages about you're a winner so we, i'm gonna on that website if you want to see who the winner is every day we'll, we'll post the winner below that prize on the website right where you signed up and then also you'll be contacted from an official Remy Warren email. So if it's not one of those two things, then it just trust that it's spam and ignore it. Don't click on any links. Don't send any money. I will never give someone something and ask you to pay for shipping or, or pay me in some way. So don't do that, okay? It's, the, it's just stay safe out there. Holiday season, there's a lot of shysters running around. So we're going to do our giveaway, but... Uh, just try to to streamline some of that and try to limit some of that 
spammy stuff. I've got a, a, a website on my website, a specific spot designed for the giveaway. So this year, hopefully it runs a little smoother. It ran really smooth last year, but I got so many messages of people getting contacted by these fake accounts and they put like a fake picture and all this other stuff. And I just don't like that. So we're moving it in-house. We're just doing it all on my website. And I think that it'll make it a little bit easier. So looking forward to that. Now with this being 12 days of Christmas, I really want to break down 12 tips that are just going to change the way you do things for the better. There's a ton of those little things that make a hunt more successful, more safe, and more enjoyable. So I'm going to mix in some stories from the season as we dive into the 12 tips of hunting. When it comes to hunting success, there's always a few little things that can tip the scales in the hunter's favor. And as a professional guide, as somebody that hunts with a lot of people, and as the things that I've learned over the years, a lot of these things I might talk about, hopefully you've heard on other podcasts and other pieces of mine where you go, oh yeah, because some of this stuff just needs to get hammered home. The most simple tip that I could give any hunter, one hunter said, what's one thing I could do? I think all of these kind of fit into that category. Some of them are more safety factor things as well. Just like, I kind of have this best way of doing, they call it like a best practice. I have a best way of doing certain things. And most of these tips are because either something went horribly wrong or uh, you just, over the years, you've developed this, this way of doing something that, that tends to lead to more success or a more enjoyable experience. I think this tip, tip number one, I'm going to call it heads up buttercup. All right. You always got to be looking. If, if you could make it an acronym, ABL, always be looking. One thing that I see hunters do that I think is detrimental to the, the stock and often the hunt is they're looking at the ground so often. I took somebody out hunting this year, a guided hunt. And I'm like, all right, half the time I just sneak in with everyone because I know that I can get into position, but on this particular time, I was up throwing some hand signals and the person was stalking in. And I'm like, I'm hand signaling them. Everything's looking good. And it's like the last few, I'd say the last 400 yards, I'm looking at them through the scope and I'm looking at the way they're stalking in. They're just looking at the ground and they're moving. Well, the, the deer had moved slightly to the other side of the tree and the person essentially just like walked up, not looking. And it had they had their head up on a swivel looking around, they would have been able to readjust and get into position, not blow the deer out. When you're hiking around, one thing I, I've said this before, and it should be kind of like a broken record, but you think about your day-to-day -day life. When people are walking down the street, are you looking at your feet where you're going? Or are you looking where you're going? I don't know why people, as soon as they enter the woods, it's like they're looking at the ground. Let your feet feel the ground. Yeah, look ahead of you. If you see obstacles, like I used to do this, and I still do it. It's just like when you're hiking a lot, you're just trudging. <laughs> you just kind of get bored in some ways, right? I like look ahead and then I will close my eyes and just continue down the trail. And I can put my foot on a stick that I saw 10, 12 steps away. I've walked a lot right? Like I don't even need to, you can almost just visualize the ground that's in front of you by looking up. It's actually a good thing to practice. 
yeah, as you're just like hiking around and you go, okay, I mean, don't fall off a cliff or <laughs> trip. Somebody's going to send me a thing like, I got this stick through my arm because I closed my eyes while walking. What I'm saying is like your peripheral vision, it takes over. How many times are you driving down the road? This is a bad thing to say, but like you're driving down the road, you're like, what? how did I get here, right? You're like, you don't remember the last little section of the road, but you weren't going off the road because you're looking in at whatever and your peripheral vision helps guide you. Maybe it's not the most observant, maybe you step on a stick or other things. But as I'm hiking, my head is up and I am constantly looking around. I can tell in five seconds, the guys that are really successful, good hunters, just based on the way that they're walking. When that head's up and on a swivel, continually looking, stopping, looking, uh, moving in with their head up, that doesn't mean that they're loud moving in because when their head's up, they're looking at future and potential noise factors and, and avoiding those things. So on the stock, it's important because you're looking up to find animals that you may not have seen before. That's that doe bedded, that cow bedded that when you're stalking in on that bull, that's that the animals moved a little bit. Now they aren't where you thought they were. That's also that, oh, if I was not just looking right in front of me and trying to be quiet and looking down, I don't know, people like get into a slump and their heads are down and they're in this posture. It's just like, I'm just walking down the trail seen so many animals walk in front of people like i've been glassing and i was glassing one guy a couple years back just walking down the trail i'm like oh there's a guy and then i just see these animals like these mule deer go over the ridge in front of me and he never saw them never even like i could tell he never saw them and clearly could have it's just when you're looking down your, your focus there and your peripheral vision isn't paying attention to those minute details that you need to pick up so head up head on a swivel, especially when you're moving in, but also when you're just walking around. If your head is up, you're going to be more observant. You're looking at the ground in front of you. You're actually probably going to be more quiet because you're going to let your eyes lead the way and your feet do the following. And I think the combination of that is a very successful tactic. Tip two, tip two, tip toe. I guess it's a little play on words there, but learn to walk on your toes. I've stressed this fact multiple times, but feeling the ground with the front part of your feet, not just heel straight, not kicking your feet, pick your feet up and walk quiet. Place your foot, don't scrape your foot. Even when you're on a gravel road, it's like a pet peeve of mine. I just, it just makes my skin itch. And it happens to me nearly daily. So it's like, I'll be hunting or walking with something, whether we're walking, especially when you're walking down a, a, like a logging road. And all you're is gravel kicking and it's like people are heavy footed. I think that if you learn to just walk soft, like place your foot, it's, you, there's a reason like tiptoeing is quiet. Walking on the front part of your feet when you need to be quiet is quiet. You know, big stiff boots make it a lot harder to feel the ground. And that is kind of a combination of the heads up thing and the way that you walk. But learning to walk quiet you know, put your foot, not all your weight at once, like put your foot down, then the rest of your foot down, feel the ground if you can. And, you know, walk softly, walk softly, carry a big stick. <laughs> There's a reason for that. It's because you can get a lot closer and the animals don't know that you're there. That kicking of the gravel, that crunching of every brush, that not paying attention to where you're walking goes hand in hand with the head up thing. I mean, I was on a hunt this year and I had, what was it, like three people following me. It was like guided hunt. And it was like one hunter and a couple people just 
going along on the hunt as well, right? And it was like, there was a lot of dried balsam root where we're going. So that's that, some people call it, like it looks like a, it's a large leaf, like a mule's ear type leaf. Well, when it dries up, balsam root is the alarm system of a mule deer buck. Like they park themselves in areas around that. And so we're like still hunting and fairly thick stuff down the ridge. And all I hear is like kicking rocks and gravel. And it's like a herd of elephants and we could not get anywhere near a deer it was something that could have been avoided. Like I could hear my, you know, my step. And I'm like, okay, guys, like pay attention to where you're stepping. Don't step on this plant. Don't do that. Like pick your feet up. Don't drag your toes. Like set your foot and don't kick. And it's one thing that people don't think about in their day-to-day life, especially if you're just getting started. There is a way to walk quiet. Do it in your everyday life and translate that into hunting. I, I always think it's funny because, uh, when my wife, when I was dating my wife, she had a roommate and her roommate would always be like, whether if she's like in the living room and then someone would would walk in, she'd be like, I can never hear your boyfriend, me walking. It's like, I can hear you coming and I can't hear him. It's the weirdest thing. He just like all of a sudden appears. It's like, uh, what's that? Mr. D's. I'm very, very sneaky, sir. I'm very, very sneaky. And it's because I walk in a, in a way that doesn't make a lot of noise. There's certain people think about in your house and you know, you hear them coming, you hear that footstep and they're always walking loud. And in our normal lives, we've learned to walk loud. I don't know why it is. There's just like a, a, a trait that we have now. It's like we put on shoes that protect our feet and we can just stomp around. Learn to walk quiet. <laughs> it makes a big difference. Number three, this is a safety thing. Tip number three you know, I think that the most dangerous part in a hunt is when it comes to probably when people are using a knife. You know, it's like the processing part. And it's when multiple people are around. One thing that I've learned in my years of doing this is when you're when you're cutting up an animal, when you're processing something, always sheath or clothe your not close your knife if it's a folding knife when you're not cutting. And there's the reason for that. I know a lot of people that have had injuries where somebody sets a knife down and it gets lost. Somebody steps in it, it's dark, it's whatever. And you get in the habit of setting things down. Not only do you lose it, but it can be dangerous for someone else. Another thing is like two people working on an animal. One person goes to break the leg and one person is holding and pulling a knife and they either stab themselves or stab someone else. This comes from experience. I've been stabbed and I've been cut from knives that are just laying around. I make a very strict rule when I am at a kill site, whether I'm alone or with someone else, this is the rule. We don't have knives laying around. We sheathe our knife, we close our knife, we put it in a certain place. So everybody knows where that knife is. And that way we prevent losing it, which happens to a lot of people, but also prevents unnecessary injury. Number four, the wind is king you have to always be paying attention to the wind. And that includes pre-daylight. One thing that I always do is I always carry a lighter in my pocket, which I use as fire starter, but I also use it as a wind check, especially in the dark, those early mornings when a bull bugles down in the bottom and I go, okay, what's my course of action? I check the wind all day, every day, every, it seems like every five. So I'm using whatever I can grab and find. And so I, I have one of those like puff bottles for certain situations because I think that that's a really good accurate way 
but I feel like I ha- I don't go through very many of them for as much as I check the wind. I'm dropping grass. I'm as I'm walking, I'm gathering things to to drop and check the wind. And in the morning, I'm using my lighter in the dark, and I use my lighter throughout the day as well to to just get that wind direction. You would think that you know which way the wind's going based on which way it's hitting you, but it does certain things when you drop stuff into the wind. Uh, if I'm walking and I find something, any kind of plant with a more cottony top, like fireweed after it's flowered or shoot, I mean, dandelions, just random like pieces of whatever or a piece of a feather that I find that comes out of a jacket or a feather that I find on the ground. Or I can pull pieces off and drop in the wind, see what those thermals are doing, see the way that it's moving. You know, those wind checking bottles, just constantly checking the wind because it is so important in my hunt planning and I need to know things before something happens, right? So I'm moving and adjusting for the wind, but also I need to know what the wind was doing. The more you check the wind, I guess, the more you start building this pattern of what wind does in certain places. Oh, as I move up toward the top of the mountain, it starts to swirl as it's like cold in the morning on the shaded side, it starts to drop. Like you really start to understand the wind when you check it continually. Tip number five of our 12 tips of hunting is one that you hear me say all the time. But hey, it can't be a broken record if you don't keep repeating and repeating and repeating because there's certain tips that just need to be repeated. Use your optics, okay? It's like the thing that drives me crazier than anything. When I'm, when I'm hunting with people or I see people and it's like I hear of somebody's like, I, I didn't have any success or I had trouble finding animals. I'm like, well, how often were you using your optics? And the answer is generally like, uh, yeah. If you got good glass, put it to your face. Now, outside of that, I think cleaning your optics often helps. That's one thing that I'm probably guilty of, but I do notice every time I clean them, I go, oh, wow, I can see so much better. I get less eye fatigue. They work better. Obviously, using your optics, sitting down, and using them in in a way that's appropriate, like getting steady. Don't just throw them up and look at something eight miles away and go, ah, there's nothing here. Like if you're looking at something far or something close, you know, Decide how you're going to look and what optics you're going to look through. We talked about this on an earlier podcast this season of when to use what, how to how to get steady, how to really pick apart a mountain. Go back, listen to that podcast. But also, I think it's very important, just as a straight tip, somebody's like, give me your best tips for being successful. This is in there. It's use your optics. Like you've got them, have them readily available. Use your bino power. I feel like, this has been beaten home so many times in that it's like should just be commonplace. But I think that a lot of people, like every time I go out into the woods and encounter people, I, I kind of feel like this is the thing that's lacking. And it's super simple to do. You've got it. You spent the money on those optics. Use them. I use the crap out of my binoculars and my spotting scope. And I am looking through my optics. I don't even know. If there's something that's bad for your eyes by looking through optics, I will get it. I don't think that there is. I have incredible vision, and I think it's because I work my eyes out a lot, doing lots of looking. But I think that it's a very, very important thing to do, and you've got if you've got optics, use them. Tip number six. This is one that I continually, as a, as a guide and outfitter, this is the one that I think especially early in my guide for the first large portion of my guiding career, I think that this is one that people didn't 
think about. You know, and, and I think that maybe if you if you grew up hunting the West, you, you kind of get it a little bit more. But I, if you're a guy that's like, hey, I'm coming out to hunt the West for the first time, when you dress to go into a deer stand or sitting, it's completely different. And for me, this is the opposite, right? When you're dressing for a hiking hunt, most people have a lot of very heavy, hot clothes that aren't used to it. Tip number six is dress light for the hike. I talked about this even last week. You don't want to be having all your, even when it's cold, you are going to warm up. Walking around makes you hot. Start out cold. That's a, a huge thing when it comes to, especially like later season or just the comfort of not getting oversoaked, not being oversweated, not soaking through all your layers. You're going to get hot. You're going to get overheated. And honestly, as somebody that hikes a lot, I have also been in that, but I still do it, right? I still am like, ah, cold and I leave my jacket on I start hiking and I start getting really hot and I realize that my energy level and like the perceived strain of a strenuous hike is multiplied when your body can't vent the way that it was supposed to and so by dressing light you can perspire and it can burn off and it can cool you down and when you have that jacket on it traps it and it traps that moisture and it does kind of the opposite until you really soak through your jacket and it actually makes it harder or more difficult to hike. Taking that little bit of time to just take your jacket off, vent your pants and vent your whatever, and then go again. You feel lighter, you feel better, and your body works it the optimal way. Now, the opposite is true for me. When I go to sit, the first time I sat in a tree stand, and I was just like, I didn't have enough warm clothes. I understand now why people would show up on these guided elk hunts with like the thickest jacket like it's going to be cold out like it is going to be cold out when we stop so we bring lightweight layers to to block the wind and the cold but we aren't stopping for all you know i mean even if you're stopped and glassing you can move around a little bit to warm up so dress light for the hike you know have those layers for warming up and when you stop and throw them on but when you're moving move light dress light start an uphill hike cold because you're going to warm up and you don't want to soak through all your all your layers because you're going to need them tip number seven is going to be start your hunt planning early especially when it comes to tag research applications figuring out how to get a tag and where to get a tag it's getting harder there The fact of the matter is, and whether it's like people can point to this podcast or social media or this, that, and the other thing, you know, there, it is more difficult to get tags now. And that's just the fact of it. I don't know if it's a factor of more hunters, maybe, but you look at the, you look at the research is like, there are more hunters in some aspects, but in some of, in other things that I see, it's not as many more as it feels like. However, you know, opportunities are reduced the type of opportunities that used to be available for over the counter and just being able to get out it seems like those are reduced and it also seems like you know there's a lot of competition for tag draws in places that 20 years ago there wasn't it was just a different landscape things change you know we're in that different landscape now there wasn't mapping software like just the actual i would say ease of access the the knowledge base that somebody can jump into really quickly now is completely changed the game and i think that that's the main factor in it Uh, you can have mapping software that shows you where you're at you can go online and 
read about a unit. Like before you had to get a, half the time you had to go to that state to actually get the fishing game proclamations, right? You didn't just, like there wasn't just a website that you could go to. When I first started hunting, it was like, well, I would have to drive to X state, go to their fishing game office and get a, a tag or an application, a paper application and mail it in with a check. Like it was very difficult to do. And there was no information on the units and it was just like, kind of the wild, wild west. And then you had to get like a, a paper map and figure out where you were going. It was just very, it was difficult, right? And the guys, those of us that have done it, are like, oh, those days, right? When you figured it out, you put in a lot of work and it was hard to do. But when you figured it out, very few people have figured it out. That ease of information is here. But because that ease of information is here, it allows you to do the kind of research you need to do to start planning early. Go Hunt's an incredible sponsor of this podcast and it's because it's a product that I've used for a long time to find tags and find hunts. The, ins the Go Hunt Insider is like what I use to, to really pick apart areas and also see, okay, well, these tags are available. Okay, and now I can hunt plan. I use it a lot and so it's easy for me to talk about because it is how I find a lot of my hunts every year. But whatever you use, I think you need to start early. That planning phase starts for me well before application season. It's like now is when you want to start thinking about next year's tags and sometimes like I mean I've I uh, this happened to me a couple of years ago. I was like, "All right, I forgot about something or I, I just, you know, the draws that I thought I was going to draw, I didn't draw this was two years ago. And it was almost like, I was like, oh crap, I'm like playing catch up on trying to get tags when having a, a really good plan early helps immensely. And so that's something you want to think about. If you're like, hey, I, I want to start planning a, maybe you're a guy listening and you're like, I have, I'm going to, I want to go on an elk hunt in the future. It doesn't even have to be next year. Well, when in the future, five years from now, three years from now, whatever that time frame is, start planning that hunt now. Okay, where do I need to get points? What's an area that I can realistically get a point in three years? Maybe a place that takes two points and I'm going to go in three years to prevent uh, point creep. These are the things you want to start thinking about. Plan not just this year's hunt, but four or five years down the road. I have a kind of a roadmap that I've set up and I, I keep a lot of notes and I... And I go through my hunt planning app on Go Hunt a lot. I, I stare at points, you know, I, I nurse those points. Some of, some of my points are old enough to buy me a drink at the bar. So it's like, you know, I nurtured them. I've, I've had them for a very long time. I go, when do I want to cash in on this? When can I cash in on this? What do, you know, I was planning on cashing in on Wyoming this year, but after the winter, I'm going to probably just say, you know what, Wyoming is going to be a retirement hunt for me. Not that, not that, you know, whatever, but I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not going to cash in those points or maybe I'm going to pick an area that didn't take as many points and just burn my points and say, screw it. I don't need all those deer points. I'm going to go hunt a place that didn't get hit by hard winter and go hunt some different deer for five or six years and then go, you know, shoot for the moon later. I don't know. But what I'm saying is I plan my hunts out fairly long in advance and it gives me a good, you know, sometimes you're dis you get the disappointment, right? But I have this, this roadmap and I've been playing this game for a very long time. I've been playing this game for, see my oldest, my oldest, how old's my oldest point? It's like talking about my children. I think I've got some, dude, I'd have to think about it. 
24, 25, something like that. I've got some old points. So they, uh, you know, they owe me. I just put them through college. But anyways, uh, you, you really got to plan out your hunts. And, I, and to be 100% honest, a lot of my hunts end up being those more general area type hunts because those are the ones that I can cash in and kind of have more confidence knowing that I can actually get the tag when I want it. And a lot of times I overbuy or over, like I've got, I go, I'll go on a hunt that takes five points with 10 points or a hunt that was on six points that takes three points because it's better to be out in the field hunting and know it's like, okay, I can, I can cash in on this instead of always chasing that. Oh, last year it took six points. Well, I'm going to put in with six points and, and now it takes eight. Okay. You're just better to plan your hunt out, say, this is what I want to hunt. This is what I'm going to do. And then find one that I can kind of guarantee in some way or some fashion and start planning that out now. Start planning this year, next year, five, six, seven years down the road. Build yourself a little roadmap. Pick a few states. You're like, it's all expensive. It all takes money. So maybe take a couple states that are, I've talked about this when it comes to hunt planning. We're going to talk a lot about application stuff and, and hunt planning and scouting next month, the beginning of the new year. But, you know, pick a state that's a preference, pick a state that's a bonus, pick a place, find a place that you can maybe pick an over-the-counter tag, getting pretty rare, and start building out that hunt plan. Tip number eight, this comes from this season. I This is not one that I probably would have put in my top 12 tips, but I encountered it three times this year. And so I think it goes, this is something that I never even think about because I just wouldn't do it. It just seems like common sense to me. Don't camp in the middle of an elk feeding area or like when it's time to camp, okay? You do not have, like there's certain types of features that elk and deer and animals use. When you're camping, don't camp there. Story. Opening week of rifle season for elk. I go in an area that's like pretty prime feeding area for elk and there's a tent in the middle of it. It's not even a good camping spot. It's just like, I don't know if they wanted to get out away from trees. I couldn't figure it out, but it was just the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. Also found this year a camp. And I don't even think that this is, I mean, I don't know what the legality is, but somebody camping with a trailer on a water hole in a fairly arid place where elk needed water. And it completely changed the patterns and the movements of those elk and not for the better, you know, they eventually left, but uh, it was like, okay, what if it's a 200 yard radius, I think is the law in some places like, oh, well, there, I'm 210 yards. Don't camp near a water hole that is used by animals and whatever. If it's a stream, that's different. You know, they can water a lot of other places. If you're in an arid southwestern hunt and you're putting your trailer on a water hole, don't do it. <laughs> you know, it's just, I feel like it's common sense, but there's certain, I mean, some people go like, well, then I'm, where do I camp? I don't know. Just tuck out of the way. Like if there's an elk feeding area and, and it seems like a, you can, you don't have to, I don't always camp super far from where I'm hunting but I do camp tucked into places that I just don't think animals are, are going to frequent a lot. You know, tuck in off the other side of the ridge on the downwind side of where you're planning on hunting. Tuck back in a pocket of trees that's like kind of similar to all the other pockets of trees. Don't camp on an area where there's a really well-used elk trail if you can or, or whatever. There's a million places to camp. There's a few places that I refrain from camping and that's watering holes and feeding areas. Simple as that. 
Tip number nine. This is one that when you comes to the pack out, I think most people probably get injured on the pack out and they probably get injured when they go to stand up. They got a heavy pack on and they're like, oh, give me a hand, buddy, help me up. Or they're trying to pick the pack up and throw it on. I've tried every method. This is the best. You put your heavy pack on, you cinch it up, you lock it in, and then you roll over and stand up, okay? If you can't get yourself over, I mean, I've had very, very heavy packs and done it this way. Instead of, if somebody's gonna help you, have them help you roll over, I guess. Uh, You know, heavy pack, so you're laying back in the pack, the pack's on the ground. You hook your waist belt, you get your, your pack situated, and then you roll to a side, and then squat yourself up is easy way. Do it on a slope too. Sometimes you can do it with poles and go toward the downhill side. You don't necessarily have to roll over, but I think that that's a good way to not strain yourself or strain your buddies. I see like this grabbing wrists and pulling each other up. It's like, dude, I've seen a guy's arm get dislocated because of a heavy back and the way he's pulled up. It's just not, I think it's not safe. You're like, you, you can stand up, should be able to stand up on your own free will. So just, you know, get your feet underneath you and, and squat your way up. That's a, a good way to do it. I think that there's a lot of like picking up and throwing on and doing all this other stuff. If it's a real heavy pack, that's, you just want to do it in a safe way. So I, I, I lock my pack in, then I either go forward with whatever. Generally I'm turning toward the hill uh, sometimes I've been stuck on more flat ground. You know, you want to slope to do this. It's a lot easier. Sometimes on flat ground, I'm like a turtle. I've like got my body weight on my back and that's how you can strain yourself. But um, turn toward the hill, face the hill, and then, you know, get your feet under you and stand straight up. That's a good way to, you can do that with a lot of weight. Trust me, done it. And I think that that will, in long-term talk, keep you going and less prone to injuries over the long run. I've packed out a lot of heavy stuff, packed out a lot of packs. I, I've been I've been a packer for many a years. Uh, you know, I've packed out a, multiple elk in a week and, you know, you just knock on wood, no injuries from that. My only severe injuries from duck hunting. So <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, it seemed to work. Uh, and that's, I kind of have like this way that I do it and that's the way that I do it. And I suggest other people do it. And it seems to, to be a good method for getting up with a heavy pack. Tip number 10, along those same lines, but is just stay in shape. You know, one of our partners, Mountain Tough, I think that that's one of the things that I love about them is their philosophy on fitness. A lot of people are like, I've got a hunt coming up. It's time to get in shape. I think that when we're talking about the new year, we're talking about hunting season is about as far away as it's going to be, right? It's like just about to end and you've got time. Don't do this a month out. Don't do it weeks out. Do it now. Get in shape. Stay in shape. It's the, in the amount of energy and effort, it's the easiest one to do, really, because you're, you're getting there and you're maintaining. It's really hard to go the peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. It's just easier to, to kind of make that your lifestyle and stay in shape. I think that fitness is the single most determining factor when it comes to consistent success and it's like the guys that are just always bringing home the bacon always tagging out always take like there's guys that luck into things for sure and there's guys that go out and and are successful but the ones that do it all the time they 
are in very good physical shape. And that's just because Western hunting favors those that have the capacity for persistence in a tough environment. And those that have that capacity for that can hunt harder, go farther, and make more out of the days that they do have available to them. Whatever shape you're in, you can always be in better shape. Me personally, like I gotta heed my own advice. You know, I, I actually feel like in some ways, it's like having a new baby and all that stuff. Like it all, I understand. Like life catches up. And sometimes I feel like there was, for me, I'm always out hunting, but there was a stretch for me this year that I wasn't guiding or I wasn't like doing a lot of big mountain hunts. And so I kind of let myself get out because like, I will pack on some, I will eat some calories when I'm, (laughs) when I'm out there, right? I can, I can put down some food. And when you're used to like never having to think about what you eat and then you just kind of stop being as active as you always are. And then you kind of eat the same. I gained like 15 pounds in a matter of, it seemed like a couple days, (laughs) not not really. But uh, since I, since I've burnt it off and, you know, done the mountain tough workouts and like, all right, I got to fix this. But I say that to say I've been in those positions and honestly staying in shape is the, you feel the best. It, it like gives you that additional stamina, that additional recovery, like your body's just used to it. And I think that now is a really good time to start thinking about that and, and thinking about figuring out, okay, I'm doing this for hunting. When I got to do some kind of workout and I think about it, Really, I'm not thinking about the workout. I'm just thinking about, I just visualize myself out on the mountain. I'm like, okay, I'm paying it forward. I'm, I'm buying into my future hunt. And when I think of it in that way, it makes it a lot easier to get up early and, and do what you need to do to stay in shape. Number 11, this is a hunting tip that I don't know if enough people talk about, but how many important integral pieces of item or gear get lost or left or whatever? This is just my little best practice. And I never set stuff on the ground, like individually on the ground. I'll take my pack off. But it's like, let's say I'm, I I don't even know what it is. If I've got a bow and a release and I'm going to do something, I put everything in one place together. So I'll take my pack off. I'll put my bow on my pack. I even have like a strap. So my solo hunter strap probably goes over my pack. If I'm taking my release off, my release goes on my bow. And that's all in one place. If I have to take my binos off or my bino harness off, I'm just changing jackets, right? I'm changing a jacket. How many times does this happen? Or somebody's changing a jacket, they swap out their jacket, they set their binos down, they've got their range finder. I don't even know. I've seen like when your range finder doesn't have a pouch, and it's like your range finder's set here, your binos are set here, your knife's set here, you got things in your pocket, and then they throw on their new jacket and something happens and they're missing something. I always, if I'm doing that, if I'm changing my jacket, I'm putting my binoculars on or in my pack and I'm, everything is in one place. I don't just set things on the ground. I don't set my knife on the ground when I'm cutting up an animal. I don't set my binos down. I I put everything, the little bit of time to be that kind of organized. I'm not even Mr. Organization. I know people that are anal about organization and very meticulous, but I found that if you set stuff down, you forget things, things get lost. Some of that stuff might be very important. Some of that stuff might be integral to your safety and survival in a backcountry situation. By just having this philosophy is like with my release, it's the it's either on my wrist or on my bow. I've talked about that before. Uh, it's like when I'm out in the backcountry, 
certain things or certain places and I keep those certain things those places. And when I got to change things or set something down, I put it where even if I forgot, it's in my backpack. Cool. It doesn't matter. I know where it would be because it's in my backpack or it's right on my backpack. You know, and, and yeah, I'll drop my pack and do stocks and other things, but I'm dropping my pack, drop my boots. I, I put everything together or in a place that I know for sure I can go back and get it. Tip number 12, the last tip of our 12 tips of hunting. This comes into the play after the hunt is over, when it's time to process. And I think that this tip is one, it took me a little while to learn. And once I figured it out, it just made my life so much easier. And it's get a big meat grinder, like get a high capacity grinder for meat. If you're going to butcher your own animals, I've talked about this before. There's a reason that I started working with Meet Your Maker and it's because they had one and a half horsepower commercial type grinders or one horsepower. I started, I've ground up so many deer in the past on just crappy grinders and the process of it sucks and it's not as good in, in the long run. For the little bit more that you can spend, you know, get something that's quality. And I, I say that today too because like that's a, it's actually, it's a company that I work with, but I work with them because I actually very invested in people's satisfaction when it comes to butchering game animals, because I've seen it happen. I talk to friends and it's like, they just have a horrible experience grinding there. You get a lot of grind off of big game. I actually, we eat a lot of grind in my house too. So burgers key, like we do a lot of sausage, we do a lot of other stuff and grinding something yourself can be a pain in the ass, but it's super easy with a really good grinder and it makes a big difference. So I think that that, like when it comes to the processing portion of it, if you're going to process your own animals, and I highly suggest like, you know, there's a lot of good butchers out there. There's a lot of real bad ones too. I don't mind taking my meat to a good processor. The price, you definitely pay for it. Like the price of processing probably one or two animals is the price of buying really good stuff that you can use forever. So, you know, in, in some ways, like when I'm guiding and other stuff, if I shoot something on a couple of days off, I take it to a processor and I've, I know I've got a really good processor that I take it to and I trust and they do it the right way. Not all of them do it the right way, unfortunately. And, I, and I've talked about that before. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of processors that the grind is just a, like they grind all of a certain animal together that came in that day and then you get a certain percentage of weight back. That to me is disgusting. I don't know how that could even be legal, but they people do it and i've had uh, i got a moose in alaska and i did not even think this is how i found out that they do that it's like i brought in this very young bull that i shot for me i took a, i've told this story before but I, I took the a lot of the prime cuts back with me but i you know there's a lot of burger and other stuff and i just thought okay i'm you know this is, there's a lot of meat here it's a moose <laughs> you got you want some good stuff and so I thought that this butcher would be great. And I took them, like literally this moose that I killed went straight onto a horse. It was pristine, nothing touched the dirt. It was just as ideal as it could get. And the guy that came in behind me brought a moose that looked like the meat sat in the swamp for 10 days before they got out on a bush plane. They did not take very good care of it. It reeked, like it just smelled nearly rotten. When I got my burger and sausage and everything back, I couldn't eat it. It like made me gag. There was... I, call, I was like, what the hell happened? This was expensive and I, you know, whatever. They're like, well, we don't separate. Like, it, that's what you get. <laughs> okay. Like, that's just blows my mind. But either way, it's a good lesson to learn. It's better me learn that lesson than you learn that lesson. So 
you have a lot of options out there. But if you're going to spend some money on something when it comes to hunting and you want to process your animal, get a good grinder. I did that for years where I just like bought a real shitty grinder and <laughs> just struggled through it. I like just being able to drop pretty much any piece down there and just get a really good consistent grind. That to me is important. These are the things that I think of. And this is timely because I'm also giving away a grinder. And this is like, look, I'm just throwing it back out there on my 12 days of Christmas giveaway. So 12 days of Christmas, this just, I didn't even pre-plan thinking about this because this was my tip. And then, hey, we're giving away a grinder as well. So if you're like, oh, a good grinder is expensive, not if you win it, it's free for you. So something to think about, guys. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast, you know, running through 12 of those tips. A lot of it is stuff that uh, you might have heard throughout other podcasts that I've done. If you listen to all the podcasts, hopefully you've heard pretty much every single one of those before, but putting it into a place where it's like, all right, here's some of the things that I think are very important when it comes to hunting success, safety, and just a few of the little things that you can think about that just changing one way that you go about doing something can make a really big difference in your overall hunting success. And that's the thing that I, I really like to stress on our podcast is there's so many little nuances to hunting successfully in a way that is very repeatable. And a lot of the things that make it very repeatable for success is doing things a certain way. And so I hope that you guys kind of grasp and, and catch, latch on to some of those little tactics because those little tactics I think are what really, you know, make the hunt enjoyable in some ways, safe in a lot of ways, and then successful in many ways. One of the things that I wanted to mention, if you've got some hunting questions coming up Friday the 15th, we're going to be doing a live call-in Q&A. So make sure to check my Instagram stories. Uh, sometimes I have technical difficulties. Like, I don't know where I'm going to be. <laughs> sometimes it's on the top of a mountain. But I, it's been working. So I, I get those recorded and it's fun to do those, those call-in Q&As. I've always got some kind of prize for those that call in or sometimes I do a, a not for everyone that calls in. Sometimes it's just one prize that we give away during the, the call-in. But it's a good way to additionally have a, a great chance at landing some sweet gear. The way that I generally do the call-in, if you aren't familiar with it, is I announce it on Instagram, on the stories or on a post. It starts at a certain time. The first 30 people that call are like essentially in the room on the call. You can listen to the podcast while you're waiting so you can hear what other people ask. It's like a live radio show, but essentially just for those first 30 callers. The, the second that that timer clicks on whatever time I say I'm going to do it, as long as there's no technical difficulties, that's how you get in. And it takes those first 30 callers and then everybody else gets kicked off. It generally fills up the exact time that that clock turns over. So if you're like, oh, I've tried and I just didn't get in, that's what's going on. Just think about that. If you guys want in and want to ask a question, give that a shot. It's really fun to be able to talk hunting with you guys. I really enjoy doing those podcasts. So that's going to be on the 15th. Next week is going to be our annual Christmas special. I will, you know, I, I like doing that. It's fun for me to do those, those Christmas specials. So if you guys enjoyed the last Christmas special, I always have a little secret giveaway on that as well. So we'll, we'll do that again this year. 
if you guys are interested in scoring another way to win some free gear, listen into that Christmas special. And then obviously as a reminder, my 12 days of Christmas giveaway going on right now, go to my website, remywarren.com and you can enter there. You find the giveaway on there, 12 days of Christmas giveaway, get yourself entered. Also just want to say, you know, special thanks to a, a great partner of this podcast, Montana Knife Company. I was cruising through their website today. They've got some blade drops coming, but a lot of sold out on a lot of their knives. And I actually like to see that because they've got a really good product. They put a lot into these knives. There's a reason that I work with Montana Knife Company. They make some incredible blades. And I think that if you're interested, that well, I actually see a speed goat on here available right now and a Stonewall Skinner, a lot of sold out knives. And if you're like, well, I want one of these knives. How do I get one of these knives? The easiest way is to get on their mailing list because it notifies you of the drops. And then same way of like, just like my call-in, if you want one of their knives, get in on their drop. That's the best way to secure the knife that you want is, is to get on those drops because they've been announcing some of their drops and then some are just like email blasts. We've got, we made this many of this knife and they're coming out and you want to get one, jump on there and get them. And then there's a few products that they have in stock. And I know that just a little behind the scenes, they're planning on doing a, a big restock of the stuff that they want to keep in stock all the time. So there will be more knives popping available here pretty soon as well. So if you're interested in Montana Knife Company knife, that's how you get them. You know, I, people are like, dude, I really love that knife. How do I get that knife? And my best explanation of how to get that knife is to sign up for their email list and be notified of their drops because that's the best way. Generally, when you do that, you can hop in there and, and grab one of the one of the knives when they come out. So something to look for if you're in the in the market for a, a good quality blade that, you know, is more than just a cheap knife that you can get at store. It's, it's an American-made, really good hunting knife. So I really appreciate them and really love their products. And I think that you guys will too if you try it out. So give that a try. I'm going to say until next week, what am I going to say? I don't know. I was going to make a, some kind of awkward 12 days of Christmas pun, but nothing came to my head. So I'm just going to say until next week, keep hunting. <laughs> That's a <laughs> Wow, these awkward goodbyes got really, it's just, I feel like, you know, and you're like, oh, this is kind of a sweaty, awkward goodbye. But that's okay. It's my sign off. It's just, it gets weird at the end. <laughs> Catch you guys later. 